Welcome back. This is Free Will is a Scam, a podcast I initially incepted for my philosophy students to listen to, and um, I convinced my brother and sister-in-law to talk with me about some great works of philosophy. And this week, I'm really excited. We got to read the inner chapters of Zhuangzi, the super classic uh, proto-Daoist text. And we had a, a pretty free-flowing conversation. We talked for, for almost two hours, and I've uh, gotten it down to what I think are the key moments. So here we go. So we've, we've been reading from Brooks of Corin's translation of the Essential Writings, Zhuangzi, the Essential, Essential Writings. This is 2009. It's pretty recent, one of the most recent translations. There's a lot of translations out there, but I really like this one. So thanks for reading it with me. And, and Mikey, you said you read a little bit of uh, Zhuangzi Speaks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tried out some other translations too. Oh, sure. Which ones did you look at? So the Burton Watson. What? Yeah. Okay. And also there are some selections in this text. That's, oh yeah. Wing Sit Sean. Yeah. Right. From my college, whatever. Oh, it's a, it's a Chinese philosophy text. Yeah, I know that one. Correct. Yeah. So I just, just to check certain passages that I'd read before, I wanted to sort of whatever, look at them comparatively. Yeah, so I was looking at um, some notes on translation by Livia Cohn. Um, she was at Boston University for a long time, but she's been just an independent scholar for many years now. This is not a transla uh, translation, but it's a, just a general text on it. Um, but in here she talks about these two schools of, of thought on translation. One is um, that translation is always transformative and that you have to preserve the spirit, but the details are less important. And the other is, is the other end, which is, you know, be as literal to the intent down to the smallest details as you can. But I really like Zipporans and I've read a bunch. Um, and I think this is great. I also have Victor Myers here and that's kind of a, oh, that's a really good one. It's a classic one from his book, Wandering on the Way. But generally we'll, we'll work obviously from this one with some salt and pepper sprinkled in from Chuangzi Speaks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'll be fun. Cool, so uh, yeah, let's do it, let's get into it. I mean, we're reading the inner chapters. So that's chapters one through seven. Again, there's different schools of thought on whether these are, as A.C. Graham said, the most Zhuangzi of Zhuangzi uh, chapters, that he wrote these and he was a person, um, and that he definitely was the one who wrote these and the rest is, is his school putting stuff together. And then there are some other schools that say like this stuff, the inner chapters came later and they're actually post-Han texts, but most people think these are relatively early among the 33 chapters. And, uh, and, and I think most scholars consider them to be the core philosophically, or Victor Meyer sees these as, as the literary masterpieces of the text for the most part. I think they definitely feel like they have a cohesive voice. You know yeah. what I mean? They, they don't feel like they were written by a lot of authors, whether or not they were. They... Yeah, Olivia Cohn suggests they probably were written by a few yeah. authors, but they really do have a, a cohesion to them, I agree. So anything, anything so moved you to start with? I don't know, but I was sort of struck, and I know we talked about this a little bit before, by things lining up in terms of Greek thought at the time in sort of interesting ways. And we talked about that a bit before, right? 
yeah. from Diogenes up through the skeptics. Yep. So it's neat for me as someone who doesn't have as much experience with Eastern philosophy, but more experience with Western. Right. Sort of see little things to be like, oh. And we actually have a similar trajectory from Zhuangzi to the received 33 chapter Zhuangzi as we do with the skeptical tradition. Mm -hmm. um, though the skeptical tradition obviously starts putatively starts earlier, like, like around the fifth century BCE, right? But we don't really have skeptical texts until much later. Uh, and that's, that's what, you know, we get to Sextus and he's, what, 150, 200, somewhere, I don't know, of the common era. And Zhuangzi is the same. You have the real compilation happening late. And the first major compilation, I think, is like around 200 of the common era or something. But also ideologically, yeah, there's, there's a lot of similarity going on. There's a lot of skepticism in here. Um, and also just the idea, skepticism and, and also this idea that there's a state that's very desirable that comes from suspending judgment. Mm-hmm that doesn't just come from a state of, you know, that you're not left just in a state of doubt, but that you actually can benefit in a positive way by attaining a kind of harmony you only can get from casting off dogmatic paradigms of your time, right? Yeah. So with, the, with the Greeks who have the ataraxia and this idea of a sort of equanimity. Yeah, totally. There's a tendency to think of this, of this work as, as destructive and it is destructive of a lot of things because it's really pushing against Confucian and Moist and legalist and every ist of the warring states period and, and trying to, to humorously often tear those down. But there's, there's a path here. I think there is a, a real direction to how humans should, should structure their lives. Not necessarily an objective path for lots of people. It's very individualistic, which, was constantly reminding me of, of our conversation about Nietzsche last week. Yeah. But also, wouldn't Chwanza say that within the destruction, we are also constructing all the time? Would this be part of the oneness? Yeah, well, it's, about, it's about change. Yeah. He's, he's always on about change. Transformational state? Right, constant yeah. transformation. Constant which, transformation. Right. Which is that not is exactly about. construction, right? It's not necessarily... Go, it's, yeah. it's transformation. It's constant moving. It's constant... But then there's the question of, are you moving towards something? I um, guess my point is it can never be only destructive. Yeah, yeah. Now, can, can you remind me for, about, because you said last time that you read a lot more of Sextus Empiricus and other skeptics recently. Do they spend any time implying a pathway or do they spend most of their time? Like, I remember Sextus Empiricus is just a, just a destroyer but in a beautiful and elegant way, but I don't remember him doing enough of it in a way that would like imply a construction or a transformation, if that's the um, terminology we're using. Well, that would be Schwanzer terminology. Yeah. No, I think, I think Betsy was spot on. I think this, this idea that ataraxia is, is a, a, an available state where if you, if you find this equipole and you don't, trip yourself and fall over into dogma on one side or the other, there is this perfect harmonic state that you can be in, which is, does reject all sorts of dogmas. It rejects things, but it also, it's sort of like the nothingness that is constantly embraced by Zhuangzi, or not so much nothingness, but, but uh, uselessness or doing, non-doing, the, what right. 
in Chinese that's wu wei, which means not doing or not becoming. So it's aiming toward eudaimonia, which I think literally means good spirit, but it's basically like a blessed happiness. Mm-hmm. And on your path to this, you need to suspend judgment on dogma and you need to do, you need to cast aside these constructs in a similar but not identical way to the way Schwanza asks people to. And ataraxia is reached on this path. So you're heading toward eudaimonia and you, you pass through ataraxia, which is great. It's not the end goal, but like you go through it and it's wonderful and it stays with you, right? But I think the only things that he, that Sextus sort of says that like you ought to do to get there, aside from all the stuff that you shouldn't do, is that you need to accept what's unavoidable. So you need to stop fighting the unavoidable things in your life. You need to recognize that getting bogged down in good, bad drama is only going to upset you and exhaust you and isn't going to get you anywhere. And you need to not radically and passionately pursue things that are right. going to distract you from so in, in the Adelaide, uh, eudaimonia path. Right. In Juan's terms, you'd be talking about not grinding and lacerating against so, yeah. structures, as he says, I think, in chapter three. Livia Cohn, in her first chapter of this book on the text itself, she says perfect happiness or happiness in general is the core issue in the Zhuangzi. That's, that's what it's all about. And so that question of finding a way to that is, is exactly the, that list of things you were talking about with the, with the skeptics. It's, it's rejecting uh, objective morality and the structures of epistemological firmness. Uh, you have to reject those things. And that's, that's basically rejecting dogma. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason why I asked the question was because I thought in reading Zhuangzi, which I don't remember feeling reading the skeptics years ago, that it wasn't prescriptive so much as implied and suggested set of good things and good ways of being that were not dogmatically presented, but because, of course, the primary one was flexibility of thought. But on the list of things, like, I mean, there's a lot, I wrote down a list, but just for an idea, like being, being polite, you know, and a lot of it is not just in the positive, there's a lot of negative things, there's modes of behavior that it seems like, regardless of context, you're not supposed to be, like you're not supposed to strive for status or materialism. You're not supposed to be selfish. You're not supposed to be disrespectful or arrogant. There's there's eight shortcomings and four failings that he talks about, which, again, they're not like a prescription for how to be and how to find this universal peace and happiness or whatever it is, this like music of nature being that he wants you to have, or it's more like you should definitely not do this though. Like these are things that are not what you should do, which then implies backwards, a kind of morality without explicitly stating it, getting bogged down in prescriptions and, and dogmas as it were. Yeah, there's, there certainly is an ought in this text. I remember reading, I haven't read it recently, but A.C. Graham's chapter on dichotomy of is and ought in the, in the Zhuangzi. This is in um, a book called Experimental Essays on Zhuangzi, edited by Victor Meyer. But um, there's something we, we should be doing according to this text, or there's several things. I think he, he doesn't get very prescriptive in general, 
because he's also one who loves to play with language and tear down language and tear down the usefulness of language. And yeah. so he's never, he's not going to sit down and, and give you a 12 step program, right? He's not going to like, all right, I'm going to write you the prescription now. No, he's, he wants to actually use words to, to show you the, the ambiguity and the impossibility of, of knowing what anything means if it is delivered by words. But you should definitely not be intemperate or obsequious or <laughs> flatter or be filled with calumny or iniquity or malevolence or perfidy. These are definitely things to avoid. So oh, yeah, there's really, yeah. really clear signposts about where not to go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then if you, if you steer away from those, then you know you might find the Tao somewhere between those signposts. But definitely don't go on those borders. Um. Well, it's funny though. I mean, I don't disagree overall, obviously, but there, I'm thinking of one little thing that I found a little surprising. I think it was in chapter six or seven. So it's in the end of chapter six, a guy's mother dies mm -hmm. and he goes to the funeral and he's, he's weeping and wailing, but no tears are falling. And one of Confucius's students notices this and goes back and is like, what's this guy's deal? He's fake mourning, but everyone thinks he's such a good mourner, you know, but I know he's faking it. What's the deal? And Confucius, I think, says something that's sort of like, how could you expect that guy to mourn? He's so in tune with everything. He knows that like death isn't a big deal, but he's got to go along and do something or people are going to think, you know, people it will if he if he didn't go along with it it would draw attention to him or something so he's not <laughs> a dissembler in a bad way do you know what i mean he's not like lying in some sort of profound horrible way it's more like you can't expect this guy to show up and look like a sage you know what i mean like he's gotta he's gotta do this little performative thing and then he can go off and and do his thing and like you can learn from him that's interesting because one of the four failings is ostentation Right. And so this guy, this guy wasn't going outside the bounds of mourning. You okay. know what I mean? And that's okay. actually why he was considered an exemplary mourner is that he was mourning exactly as he should have at the death of his mother. He didn't like hire little Greek yayas to keen for him. No, well, there's, so as in many passages with Confucius in this text, there's this undercurrent of, of deep satire of Confucian thinking. Because when, when Yang Hui says, he, lacked, he, he was lacking tears, inner sadness, real grief. The Confucian would be expected to show remarkable levels of grief and, yeah. and true, oh, okay. you know, real intensely Particularly true. for your mother, right? Exactly. And so to have Confucius say, oh, well, he wasn't, you know, rending his clothes and mourning for three years and he walked away after one whale is, again, is one of these moments where, where Confucius has Guangzhou's voice yeah. in yeah. the text. But there are other times... There are other times when Confucius is is not at all Zhuangzi's voice. He's parodied, and he yeah. is the voice of, of the fool. Um, and it's like whiplash. We go back and forth with, with Confucius in this text from being a fool and being the sage. But sometimes his sageliness has limits. I think here it does. It's like, because I don't think that uh, this guy, Meng Sun Tsai, I don't think uh, Confucius, he's praising him. But I think ultimately Meng Sun Tsai is, 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 is still not even the sage necessarily that is described frequently in here. The, you know, Zhuangzi famously when his wife died was, was like, didn't even utter a cry, he just kind of had a party. 
I didn't know he was married. Yeah, yeah. So, so Nietzsche was wrong. Good philosophers do get married occasionally. <laughs> Socrates, <laughs> Socrates, Juanza, but uh, I mean, Nietzsche thought Socrates got married as a bit. Well, that marriage was supposedly horrendous. His wife was a harridan, you know. As they would say that, of course, they terrible. Sure, but as unbearable as he was, because he's so picnic, he's ugly, he's hideous, he's argumentative. <laughs> well, I meant to ask you about that about the Confucius. Do they have any thoughts about Zhuangzi's characterization, or like, was there any um, interaction between the two? Because he seems to use Confucius as kind of like a, like you say, like sometimes he's um, a foil and sometimes he's, he's speaking with Zwanja's voice. I'm sort of confused about whether or not, like, well, what did the Confucius respond with or did they? Or, um, um, they, they most assuredly didn't like it. I mean, this is a co-opting of Confucius for sure. And it's a contestation of Confucian thinking. And, you know, he's really satirizing heavily. If we look at chapter four, where Confucius has a pretty big role, he's in several of these vignettes in chapter four, Confucius kind of starts out as the sage, giving this advice on how one should, should help a bad ruler become better uh, while not getting yourself killed. And it seems to be all very Zhuangzian advice, you know, um, allow yourself to kind of flow without getting, without being obsequious, but with also without uh, being too righteous. But then by the end of the chapter, after Confucius has, has sort of played the role of sage, Confucius runs into the madman, G-A-U, uh, who makes, I think, three appearances in the inner, inner chapters, and it's really fascinating in his appearances. But G-A-U is singing when Confucius runs into him, and he's singing, oh, Phoenix, oh, Phoenix, how your virtuosity declines. You cannot wait for a future era, nor can you recapture the past. When the course is present in the world, the sage perfects himself with it. When the course is lacking in the world, he lives his own life with it. And he goes on with this. Um, and really, this is just a, a quotation, essentially a, a satire of one of the Analects of Confucius, in which Confucius says, Phoenix, Phoenix, how your virtuosity has declined. The past cannot be corrected, but the future can still be pursued. And so Zhuangzi is saying, he has this madman walking by Confucius singing a parody of Confucius instead of look to the future and try to fix it, try to make the future, try to improve. The parody is saying, you cannot wait for the future era, but we shouldn't look to the future to adjust it. It'll just bewilder you. He says, um, drawing a straight line upon this earth and then trying to walk along it. Danger, peril, the brambles and thorns which so bewilder the sunlight, they don't impede my steps. My zigzag stride amid them keeps my feet unharmed. Mm -hmm. So like you boring moralist try to walk straight, you're just, you're a mess. I'm going to dance around and and play in the present while you fight for the future and, uh, and fail. I do find it interesting that in addition to Confucius and Confucians, so-called, there are also a lot of people living lives that aren't necessarily intentionally in the pursuit of some kind of monasticism or sagacity. So you've got you know, the cook or the butcher, you've got wood, wood choppers and soldiers and whatever, um, ex-cons and things like this. And I do find it interesting that seemingly, and 
correct me if this is a misinterpretation, but seemingly you can be walking two paths at the same time, not just in the world and in heaven, but you can sort of be having a Confucius role within society, but still be following the course in such a way. You're going the same way on two paths at once. Not that it would go on that way for forever, but it is possible. So you could be probably simultaneously married and also not a slave to your passions. Yeah, I think uh, there's a tendency to think that Zhuangzi is saying we should all be spirit men. Well, there's and there's layers. There's spirit men who like fly in the the, the, the strands of, of eternity or whatever. And, and then there's the sage and then there's the consummate person. Mm-hmm. But ultimately he's not... When I first read that consummate person, I was like, yes, of course, the consummate person. <laughs> I, would li- I would like that on my tombstone. You know? <laughs> but none of these are necessarily, there's several levels, and he's not saying be, be this thing. Everybody should go be a, a, an ascetic or a sage or, right. or, or a spirit man. I think what's, what, I, what I'm really drawn to in here is, is this, uh, in, this individualized methodology. There's, there's a path that we all can take that can be improved and we can become happier by, 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 by moving along it. And we don't have to be one thing or another. And in fact, he would probably say, naturally speaking, we shouldn't try to be something we really aren't. Right. Because well, that did, would be infringing on our, on our freedom and what we are and nature. When, Beth, when Betsy and I talked about it earlier, we were talking about it in comparison to Buddhism a little bit. So like a one part question followed by a comment, did Buddhism make it to, China yet, by the time Zhuangzi was supposedly lived? No is the short answer. Okay. Good enough answer for a Taoist conversation, I guess. Right, um, but the, there's an interesting, somewhat not long, but medium answer. Yeah. Which, which is that Zhuangzi does display some influence, uh, well, according to some scholars, uh, Meyer mentions it, Zhuangzi does display, the text does display some influence from, from further to the West, even as a, a third century BC text or a second century BC text. It's, however, that's not major and, and you know, Buddhism was still relatively young also then. This, the follow-up to that is when you get to the first and second century of the Common Era, you get this really rich interaction between Buddhists and Zhuangzi. And that is the uh, inception point for Chan, Zhuangzi is, is hugely influential on the Buddhists. Yeah. And hu- Buddhists are hu- hugely influential on Zhuangzi and Taoists. Yeah. Well, it just struck me reading this again and thinking of Buddhism in that that's another one of these like huge differences that I see in, even though there's definitely some areas where in which Taoism and Buddhism sort of like line up and sort of flow together, Though you have to, in, in according to Zhuangzi, live with doubt so much, like doubt is so important to being flexible, there is definitely a natural world that is real. And it might be a dream, but really the natural world is here and we're in it for all intents and purposes. And that's like, and being a part of that is really, really important. Whereas for a Buddhist, the most important thing is to recognize that reality itself isn't real. And that, like, being a part of the natural world may be the best way to realize that illusion. But it, what you're really trying to do is demystify the illusion of reality itself. Whereas I think Swanja and Taoists in general are much more like, 
nature itself apart from mankind's nonsense is really the thing and that's the reality that we need to sort of like try and flow with you know and that that's a very interesting difference to me yeah i think there's a different cosmology at play here the Taoists would or Zhuangzi wouldn't say and Taoists generally don't uh, propose that the phenomenal world is is an illusion at all yeah it, it's considered real it there's Zhuangzi is deeply skeptical that we can know what it is sure it's you know, know epistemology is maybe a dead end but but metaphysically and cosmologically there's a structure and it's, it exists even if it's ineffable and unknowable. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I kind of like that. I also thought though that that would be like a horrible nightmare if you're a Buddhist to be wrong about that. <laughs> you know, because in Taoism, if you're wrong about something, well, that's all in the game, you know, and you're prepared. <laughs> Um, one just like doubt is there man like live with it and be be cool but then if you're a Buddhist spend your whole life trying to deny reality and then you know somehow you figure out that it's real oh crap what do you do then well and, that, and that's like there's that's why he spends so much time on the on, on this and that in chapter two uh, I think to set up this this acceptance of this no matter whether it's bad or good or in, in your old definitions of bad and good or the definitions he rejects, we have to stop classifying these, these things altogether. And therefore what we might think of as a failure is just the thing that happened. And so we, we move through it just like anything else. There was one of the parables about how Confucius and his students are wandering around and they get caught between two armies that don't attack each other and then they almost starve to death and somebody's like, hey man, that was a real close call there, Confucius. Like, you know, they almost got you. And he was like, eh, you know, it's like being not courageous, so to speak, but like not being afraid in the face of adversity. Adversity is a part of life. And that's like a thing. You just gotta just know that's gonna happen. And that was another one of these um, implied moralities, like being, being courageous in the face of the adversities of life is, is, is part of the, the good, provided you don't define it too clearly or too minutely. I don't know that they would characterize it as courage and more an acceptance of something you can't change. Winter happens. Being unafraid. Right. There's, Which is, there's no point. Right. Courage would be the, the too defined. Being unafraid is, like, right. is more what you're supposed to be. Exactly. Yeah, sort of so, dis dispassionately uh, accepting of, of everything yeah. that is in front of you. As, no as antonyms. <laughs> antonyms not allowed. <laughs> yeah, he spends he spends quite. I love chapter two. I think it's really beautiful writing and the this this and that stuff. Uh, this is also a that. That is also a this. That posits a this and a that a right and a wrong of its own. But this also posits a this and a that a right and a wrong of its own. So is there really any that versus this, any right versus wrong, or is there really no that versus this? When this and that, right and wrong, are no longer coupled as opposites, uh, that is called the course as axis, the axis of all courses. And this is in a much broader sequence, uh, all to set up this removal from adherence to dichotomy and, uh, and strict moral code. This is very much like Derrida's stuff about the signified and the signifier. Except that Derrida truly is 
the one who just tears down. Right. Yeah, he really is the great and destroyer. I think, <laughs> right, I think that Schwanza, once you tear down that dichotomy paradigm and set up the course of access thing, it opens up so many more possibilities of comparison and perspective once you no longer have just this black, white, right, wrong. You can still relate all of these things to each other, but now it's in a multiplicity of ways, not just, well, if it's this, it must be the, you know, if that must be the opposite of this. Which is why you can be Zhuangzi and drag your turtle tail through the mud. Yeah. Or you can be a spirit man if you so wish to lose, lose your entire identity. Or you can be a, a homunculus who has uh, concubines and, and all the kings trying to give him jobs. And, you could uh, be a really adept butcher. <laughs> yeah, the wonderful butcher. Um, you can be a monkey trainer. <laughs> but I loved that quote that she sent around. Uh, a couple of days ago that I didn't get a chance to respond to, Lucas. But the quote was, uh, Zhuangzi would see Derrida as still fettered by text, unable to be freed out of the new prison in which he has found himself after deconstructing the old one. Because <laughs> he would say, like, the text is everything. And then Zhuangzi would just say, no, you see, you got it all wrong, buddy. It's words that are the problem. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And I, I love his deconstruction of words. And, and, and very much because... There is, I, I like what you said, Betsy, this multiplicity of, of possible ways to be and be happy that, that, that you can approach or you, you unfetter yourself. Yeah, I like to, in chapter two, the thing about the penumbra, right? The penumbra and the shadow are having a conversation. This whole, do I depend on something else to make me as I am? Do what I depend on depend on something else, etc. And it's so much more wonderful to explore these relationships outside of the kind of dependency that one might otherwise thrust onto the whole thing. And instead, there can be a conversational back and forth exploration. And then maybe kind of ultimately, uh, does it matter? Like, what can we do with it now? You know, like, we're, we're here now. Penumbra. Yeah, and it's it's removed from from what we describe as a subject by like two levels: the the, the shadow and then the penumbra. I, right, <laughs> right. But neither of them are neither of them are going to get anywhere if they just spend all their time going down that rabbit hole. Right. Yeah. Actually, and that that connects to this sort of Spinoza's idea of nature, where we can't uh, we can't constantly be be banging our heads against trying to figure out why nature natures, it, it just does. And we are this end result of that at this very moment, at this moment of this, and, and trying to enforce some kind of shift on either the past or the future to change that nature is, is absurd. Later he says the human incl characteristic inclinations of being a human, I think it's in chapter five or six, are the things that we should be doing away with that, that to be a, yeah. to be right we need to get rid of those characteristic characteristic in, inclinations and Huiza, his his friend who he's constantly ribbing and messing with says well what are those characteristic in, inclinations and he says well an adherence to a strict idea or to an idea of what's right and wrong because that's standing between you and and nature you and what's there for you to participate in if you mm -hmm. can get past these things that you're putting up to keep yourself out or to explain the thing that you're not actually engaging with because you're too busy trying to make it fit.
But I do think it's interesting as contrasted with like Lao Tzu or something that there's still a social element. It's not just like forget people, forget society. There's still a level of engagement that's possible. It's not a rejection. Um, yeah, and it's so also it's not a return to nature in that way. Lao is actually written as a directive for for uh, for leaders. It's written towards mm -hmm. the elites to say this is how you should rule. And Zhuangzi does very little in that regard. He he, yeah. he stays pretty far away from that. And, right, and what mm -hmm. he does comes with through Confucius as the mouthpiece or his right. Or the leader as the foil and the fool. Like Duke I, who who hires uh, or convinces Horsehead Humpback to work for him. Horsehead Humpback, who is this uh, just horrific-looking human, um, who who would you know cause you to recoil in horror at seeing him. Uh, and yet, as, as I mentioned before, when women see him, they plead with their parents, mm -hmm. saying they would rather be this man's concubine than any other man's wife. And uh, and and all the men gather to him. And Duke I convinces him to hang out and, and makes him a minister, despite uh, Horsehead Humpback's rejection of, of, the, of the title. And does, he doesn't want the job. And then one day Horsehead Humpback leaves, and Duke I says, I was terribly depressed as if a loved one had died, unable to take any pleasure in my power. Right. <laughs> He's completely lost when Horsehead Humpback leaves. And that's just after we've gotten over the loss of Tolis Shushan. <laughs> the ex-con. Yeah. Right, the ex-con in the previous <clears throat> section. And yeah, then there's someone is... the lipless, too. Well, that he's, he's maybe my favorite. Yeah, Hunchback Limpleg, the lipless cripple. Right. Is my favorite description, uh, name mm -hmm. in, this, in this. Oh, and his friend, Jar-Sized Goiter. Yes. Jar-Sized <laughs> Goiter. Yes. <laughs> I feel badly because I know that there are multiple one-footed men, yeah. and I've lost track of some of their names. This is, this is all within his theme of uselessness and the, the, yeah. the virtue of uselessness. And how can we be the most effective as humans? And, 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 and the answer is to be useless. Yeah, there were times when I, get, I got a little annoyed at that, ethically or something. In The Freak, because I was looking at the one about not a different hunchback, I guess. Um, yeah. But there's also the toeless one. Or was it do the discombobulated? The discombobulated yeah. Does it does it does it then mean that with great disability comes a lack of responsibility? Is that what that means? <laughs> that like if you're unable to perform, then that's fine because then you don't have to be relied upon by anybody. And then I mean it's it's a dangerous little ethical conundrum he creates because like I don't I, I don't want to be as useless as possible personally to find that directive a little bit problematic. He reiterates the parable about the lumberjacks not cutting down a useless tree. And then uh, he follows it up with a farmer taking a useless goose and beheading it to eat because it was useless, as opposed to the other goose that, that squawks or something. And that parable seemed to want to dance around, and the whole point of that one was to find a middle way between the useful and the useless and I started to sort of make a little piece with the uselessness thing. I should just assert that the disabled characters are not brought up because of their uselessness. They're brought up because 
they are not, in the case of the footless and legless men, they have all lost a limb as a form of punishment for a crime. And so they're not held up as being somehow enlightened through uselessness. It's more that the loss of the limb hasn't kept them from living in a profound and real way. Either they understand that their punishment was justified and their acceptance of it, but also their decision to stay in society instead mm. of hiding themselves impresses people, just as we need to be able to be okay with all kinds of transformations. These people are able to lose an actual physical part of themselves and mm. continue to engage with the world. And in these cases, improve themselves. Right. No, I, I think that's exactly right. I think there's, um, these are people who would be deeply stigmatized at the time in, in a lot of places, including China. And there's one earlier in that chapter who, uh, Shen Chujia, who won't uh, defer to the superior rank of Zichan. Mm -hmm. And Zichan is offended that Shen Chujia isn't like hanging back to let Zichan go through the door first and stuff. And Shen Chujia is like, you're holding to this status structure is, is absurd. Well, um, doesn't he even say like, our master has never made me feel like a one-legged man. Right, right. So why, why should you? I don't think of myself as a one-legged man. You're the only one who seems hung up on this two-legged jerk. Yes. So clearly, as you said, this is, this, these, these anecdotes do have an element, of, I think, with Horsehead Humpback and others of being a mirror or being useless and using that to flow through life, even if you, you know, your ponytail faces up and your, your chin is in your navel and stuff. But Micah Tolis Shushan says something very specific about responsibility here on, on page 35. Uh, when Confucius is like, you were careless, you were a fool, you, you lost your foot because you were bad, basically. Tolis yeah. says, I just didn't understand my duties and undervalued my own body. And so I now lack a foot, but I come to you with something worth more than a foot still intact. Heaven covers all things, earth supports all things. I used to think that you, sir, were like, just like heaven and earth. I never imagined you would instead say something like this. Now mm -hmm. Confucius, to his credit, he's like, oh, I was wrong. But, but Tolis just goes and hangs out with Lao Tzu and, talk, and talks about how dumb Confucius is after that. <laughs> yeah, in the one that I read with the freak, which is how it was titled in this one, just speaks... The guy, yeah, he does. He sort of approaches life in the way you're talking about, that, Betsy, now that I'm looking at it again. But part of I'm his story is that he doesn't get conscripted into the armies because nobody would conscript him. And he's always at the front of the line during a famine. Oh, yeah. So this um, is Shu the Discombobulated, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. he's the one whose who's, uh, shoulders towered over the crown of his head. His ponytail yep. points towards the sky. Yep. His five yep. internal organs were at the top of him. His thigh bones took the place of his ribs. I think there are substantial criticisms here to the anarchism that that kind of you can draw out of this in terms of like what what would a Zhuangzian society even look like? Is it maybe something to talk about in a little bit? But I want to look at the the tree and these examples through the lens of perspectivism rather than through uh, an, a recommendation that we all should all be useless. So if we look at the tree example, Carpenter Shu walks past this giant tree doesn't even give it a second look and his his little uh sidekick is like hey why don't you do something with that tree and he talks about how useless the tree is for all the reasons that it's useless and then later the tree visits him in a dream and you know and remonstrates with him this is where the tree says you know 
your perspective is so limited by your focus on finding use. And I'm sitting here with no use for you petty humans. And that's why I'm so brilliantly successful as a tree. And in that sense, it's really a, it, this is, this goes back to chapter one's playing with size and, and conscious perspective and how the large has its, uh, a totally different perspective than the, than the tiny. And they sometimes can and sometimes can't perceive each other, but they can't really understand each other because they're from perspectives that just can't, can't know each other. Something that I like about this big weird tree is that there's actually a shrine around this big weird tree. So when the woodcutter tells the apprentice about the dream and is like, listen, guy, I had this dream and the tree told me all the reasons why, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So shut up about wanting to cut it down. The apprentice actually reacts to the guy by saying, if it's trying to be so useless, what is it doing with a shrine around it? <laughs> to which we get another lesson, which is, shh, don't tell anybody about this useful, useless tree, or they'll take the shrine away and cut it down, which I think is actually sort of an added <laughs> layer about the sage, right? Where uh -huh. it's sort of like, shush, you're, you're, they're going to ruin it. Like what the tree values is not what the people who built the shrine value. Don't judge the tree because it happens to be playing the role of having a shrine around it right now. Like, just freaking walk away. Because the tree doesn't, it, the tree disdains the people. The tree like, does the not want the shrine. Right, right. Yeah, the shrine is the only thing right now it's that's keeping, keeping people from like thinking about the tree as something that they could cut down or do something with. <laughs> and so that, I mean, that actually comes around later. It may be in one of the Confucian things, though, so maybe it's not as straightforward as it was to me when I read it, seemingly. But there's this whole, you know, don't allow external things to disturb your internal equanimity, but please don't show your your internal equanimity in a way that other people will see. Or they're still yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. funny, they'll call you a sage, they're still following you around. and like It's good to be wise, but don't right, show it. Don't, don't show, show it. it. And I sort of thought of that in reference to the tree, too, right? Like, this whole useful, useless thing is not as simple, right? It can't be a dichotomy. Schwanza wouldn't have that, you know? So it's complicated too, you have to manage. Yeah, and there's this, you know, he's, he's also contesting Munzian Confucianism, Mencius's Confucianism that comes around shortly before this. And in Munzian Confucianism, there are ways that, that society shows you you are virtuous. And one of those is sort of like getting gifts and being shown by others that your that your virtue exists and what and, Hegel uh, would call recognition, right? You and then there is this: uh, you don't ask for things, you don't, but you get them, yeah. and and you get these, and these are exactly recognitions. Whereas Drums is like shun recognition, shun shun all that stuff. Right? Yeah, you don't you don't want people to know what you're up to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a problem though. What if recognition is actually essentially a part of our nature? What if the need for that, as Hegel would say, then Zhuangzi would have to add in some sort of recognition of recognition. I have a feeling, though, that naturally. Fly or, you know, drink from the numinous reservoir or whatever. <laughs> recognition is going to seem kind of petty. Yeah, I don't, think he, I don't think he would go along with Hegel on that. So, Mikey, you want to talk about the gourd and the... The gourd seemed to be definitely uh, in the salve, 
were great parables about like human beings lack of imagination uh, you, this is like you've got this great thing here you dummy you know like you could have figured this out for yourself but you know you're busy washing silk in the middle of winter haha is, is there a parable about his friend dying yeah, when there's something where a friend dies and the Confucius sends his student to the funeral. Is mm -hmm. it that one? There are a lot of funeral the student comes back, chapters, though, and is yeah. all distressed because all of the dead sage's friends are hanging out, playing and partying, and yeah. partying, and he's uh -huh. disgusted, and Confucius is like, oh, I was such an idiot to send you. These guys are so next level, and I'm such a square, and you're obviously such a square, and he says something about, we're trapped. You know, like it's our fate to sort of suck basically and be stuck in the human realm. And these guys are just so next level. Don't worry about it. I like to think that maybe Confucius actually had that side to him. You know, like I'm going to handle things down here on earth. You use ones where you can handle things all in the spirit of yourself and nature. Because the rest of the world's got to keep on keeping on. <laughs> Uh, so I'll handle that side of things. I think that was what I was getting at before with this. You know, what does the world look like if, if Zhuangzi's worldview is, it dominates rather than Confucius's in, in China? Mm -hmm. I mean, does, does China ever develop a major society? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, maybe not. Although, yeah. I, I mean, of course it would because to produce a Zhuangzi, you have to have a major civilization already. So. Oh, I think the flip side, by the way, to like the gourd and the stick tree is this whole like mo money mo problems thing too right <laughs> i think it's also sort of like oh like you think that people who are rich or beautiful have mm -hmm. all of these advantages actually being useful or desirable comes with a host of disadvantages so it serves a purpose in that way also to sort of dissuade you from envy which is why Zhuangzi, in in whatever history we have of him which is limited really assiduously avoids responsibility and particularly when he's asked to serve, he calls the ruler a, a, basically a, a sacrificial ox. This is in uh, Sima Yeah, why would, I, why would I be an ox? It's something like, haven't you seen the sacrificial ox used in the suburban sacrifices? After yeah. being fed for several years, it is garbed in pattern embroidery so that it may be laid into the great temple. And he says, I don't want to be that. I'm just a turtle dragging my, my, my tail through the mud. Yeah, yeah. When the ox goes to, to get sacrificed, what do you think he's thinking about? He'd probably want to go back to being a nice free ox living in the field. Oh, yeah. He said, Sima Chen says, it might wish to be a solitary piglet. Go away, sir. Do not pollute me. I'd rather enjoy myself playing around in a fetid ditch <laughs> than be held in bondage by the ruler of a kingdom. <laughs> So also going back for a second, what Confucius says to his student after the funeral is these are men that roam outside the lines. Mm. I do my roaming inside the lines. Rain right. can never meet. Yeah, I mean, society run by Taoists uh, is not like every commune that failed. <laughs> In chapter seven, where there's discussion of how the clear-sighted sovereign ought to be, it says something to the effect of his achievements should cover the world but seem not to come from him. He establishes his footing on the unfathomable and roams where nothing at all exists. He allows all creatures to delight in themselves. So I think there would be an element of helping people or not standing in the way of people delighting in themselves, which wouldn't look 
like some sort of hedonistic or Rousseauian pleasure grab. And I think that's a really good characterization of Zhuangzi in general. He's, he definitely is as anti-hedonistic as he's anti-moralistic or whatever. Because um, there's a whole school of individualists who are very much hedonists, uh, led by... Uh, are those the Yangists? Yeah, the Yangists, yeah. yeah. And, and he's rejecting them also. But uh, the passage you're, you're talking about is one of his many nods to Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu talks a lot about rulers, obviously, but I, I think he's referencing chapter 17 of the Tao Te Ching, which says, the existence of the best ruler is barely known to its people. Next is one who they love and praise. Next is the one who they fear. Next is the one who they ridicule. If the ruler does not trust enough, then he will not have anyone's trust. Thoughtful, he values his words. When tasks are accomplished and duties are successful, the hundred families will all say, we are naturally so. So this is one of those very direct, I think, echoes of, of Lao Tzu, which, which creep in here occasionally. Cool. And actually, this is, this is in a conversation with, with Lao Tzu, with Lao Don, and he puts it in Lao Tzu's voice directly. I just want to throw out there that I loved the line in chapter 2, 228, the radiance of drift and doubt is the sage's only map. I don't really have much more to say about that, except that I thought it was very beautiful. This, this line directly precedes the whole, is existence of non-existence ultimately, the exist, ultimately an existence or a non-existence sort of gets into platonic territory and then is like, ah, let's, let's stop this and instead talk about how the great course is unproclaimed and right. let's get to the heavenly reservoir and leave this sort of semi yeah, and this nonsense is, behind. This is actually, I think, my favorite passage from the, the entire text when he says, now I'll try some words here about this, right after the radiance of drift and doubt. Mm -hmm. Now I'll try some words here about this, but I don't know if it belongs in the same category as this or not. For belonging in a category and not belonging in that, in that category themselves form a single category. Being similar is so similar to being dissimilar. So there is finally no way to keep it different from that. But this is the section which I really love. He, he, he Nevertheless, let me try to say it. Yeah. There, there is a beginning. There is a not yet beginning to be a beginning. There is a not yet beginning to not yet begin to be a beginning. There is existence. There is non-existence. There is a oh, not yeah. yet beginning to be non-existence. There is not yet beginning to not yet begin to be non-existence. Suddenly, there is non-existence. But I do not yet know whether the existence of non-existence is ultimately existence or non-existence. Now I have said something, but I do not yet know. Has what I have said really said anything? Or has it really not said anything? There's this, this core uncertainty here amid a, a belief in a singularity and a belief in, a, in a one big thing. And that's why I think when you land in the heavenly reservoir, it's so wonderful. So who is the guy that, that you were saying he likes to smack around a lot? What was his name? Oh, uh, Huizhe. Huizhe? Yeah, and he see, so Huizhe is someone who was probably his, you know, if he existed, was probably his teacher, was kind yeah. of a, a sophist and a logician. And they were probably friends, but he plays with him all the time. He messes with him. He's a little bit of a punching bag, but he's also his friend, so they hang out together. Right, well, there's this one passage in Zhuang just speaks about him dying, and he says, uh, when Huizhe died, my partner died too. I don't have anyone to argue with anymore. <laughs> and then he, this is, I found this really touching. An adversary means 
uh, opposition and competition, but not having an adversary means grief and loneliness. Mm. And, and I was, and he was sort of like, he would probably in a different parable point you away from competition and opposition maybe, but there is, this is one of those like sort of threading the needle passages that I like where he leaves um, room for you to, you know, that there's maybe an act of friendship in those kinds of activities, which is kind of neat. He is uh, opposed to uh, office and, and rank and society in some ways, but he, he's definitely, there is that the connection. That's cool. I like that. I, I, I didn't know that passage about Wade's mom before. There's one in the outer chapters in chapter 18 that's worth sharing, uh, which is a very famous one about a fish. Uh, Zhuangzi and Huizhou were strolling along the bridge over the Hao River. Zhuangzi said, the minnows swim about so freely, following the openings wherever they take them. Oh, such they're so is, happy. Such is the happiness of fish, yeah. So yeah. Huizhou says, you are not a fish, so whence do you know the happiness of fish? Zhuangzi said, you are not I, so whence do you know I don't know the happiness of fish? <laughs> Huizhou said, I am not you to be sure, so I don't know what it is to be you. But by the same token, since you are certainly not a fish, my point about your inability to know the happiness of fish stands intact. Zhuangzi said, let's go back to the starting point. You said, whence do you know the happiness of fish? Since your question was premised on your knowing that I know it, I must have known it from here, up above the Hao River. So does this like make you feel like Zhuangzi was probably trained as a logician? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like that's pretty clear. Yeah, he's, he's, he seems to have come through this, these schools and yeah. is responding to them from his own. He's, he's creating this new territory. And I think that's really something historically that's really important about Duanza. He's yeah. the great contester of, of, of the, the other schools. The, the, and so many of those schools were premised upon knowing, uh, upon a positive epistemology rather than, than negative. I wonder kind of casually what compelled him in that direction. I feel like a lot of sort of more contrary voices felt some sort of dutiful compulsion, like in the case of Socrates, and obviously they're not alike in a lot of ways, but Socrates felt a responsibility as a citizen. And Diogenes, the cynic, was told by the Oracle of Delphi what he was supposed to do that he was supposed to deface currency. And so he did. And then he got in legal trouble and he was like, well, maybe that wasn't the currency. Maybe it was social currency. Mm. And then he dedicated his life to defacing social currency. But I'm, I'm interested and we can't know, I suppose, what it was that broke Schwanza out of that tradition. Well, I mean, that's, that's the, uh, one of the things I like about this little book that I read was that it starts out by describing the Warring States period as, I don't know if your students are allowed to hear this, but fucking horrible. Um, <laughs> like, it seems as if this, this, this is a period of, of, yeah, I mean, it's the axial period, but it's also a period in, in China of great horror and war. But I don't know much about it beyond that. Now, the Zhou dynasty, or the Zhou kingdom, had a substantial kingdom until about 770 BCE. And then from 770 to about four or something, uh, through the Lao and Confucius textual inceptions, uh, through the 500s when Lao Tzu and, and Confucius were 
writing their things. Uh, although there's almost certainly wasn't allowed so, but still the text comes from them. Um, you have a declining power of the Joe, but it's not terrible. And then the warring states from about four something to, to 220 or 221. Um, I don't know. I don't know if the characterization is as really awful as is right. It certainly was a period of competition between states and that the Chin ultimately win, but there was also the ability to move relatively freely. There was a high level of literacy um, and, and people like Confucius, Mencius, Quetzal, the youngest, all these guys were like wandering around state to state to try to get rulers to listen to them, which means there was a certain amount of peace in terms of the ability to move between states, punctuated obviously by, by some brutal warfare. Although I don't know, I don't, I, don't, I don't actually know enough about early China to know how brutal the warfare was, if this was really large armies or if it was small contingents of, of chariots going against each other, I, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm characterizing something, I mean, if that's in the way, I mean, I can read it to you, but uh, time known as the Warring States period in China, this was a period of disunity in which rival nations battled constantly for more land and greater power. As a result, it was also a time of widespread death and destruction. Okay, yeah, that's pretty strong language. I don't know, <laughs> but I haven't, I haven't studied that period at all in China. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't studied it recently enough to say if that characterization is accurate or not. Of course, there were there were warring states, but there was, again, I have to say, very clearly, there was the ability for people like Guangzhou to wander. Yeah. And that implies a certain level of, at least of peace when there's not active war, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Like you wouldn't get killed for just being from Lu and arriving in Qi. You know, you could, if there wasn't active war between Lu and Qi, then people are going back and forth. And that actually, that, that, that is consistent with the, the, the history I did learn when I, when I studied, you know, when I took a course on, on early China. I don't know, there's so much in here to, to discuss, but I uh, maybe want to hear your thoughts on, on, on Hudza, Hudza messing with the physiognomist. This is in chapter seven. There's the, this physiognomist going around saying he can tell you when you're going to die, the day you're oh, going to yeah. die. Yep. <laughs> I thought this was great. I just thought, you know, what did you think of this bit? And Hoods it just mess with messes with him. Oh yeah, it's hysterical. <laughs> so Micah, I don't know if you read this one, but no, I didn't I didn't get to. Lucas can either read it or tell you their names, but oh, it's, it's long, so I can just yeah, if you want to just paraphrase it, go for yeah, it. Yeah, so a guy tells his friend or his teacher, There's this physiognomist and he can tell you what your fortune is gonna be and when you're gonna die and how long you're gonna live and all this stuff and the guy's like, Yeah, whatever have him come here and tell me and so the guy does and he's like "Ooh, you know i see only this and such right and i forget what it is at first it's yeah, he's like, like watch out you're gonna die in a few days right and then <laughs> and the student is like oh no and the teacher's like yeah i just showed him this aspect of things which could have been like wood or whatever. And so then the guy comes back the next day and it's something else. And he comes back the next day and it's something else. And it's really just the teacher showing him all of these different aspects. And the guy finally runs away, right? Like he can't handle it because the teacher shows him some kind of like insane serpent, right? It's something, some aspect of him that's this transformational, never always changing, yeah, I think he's he's showing him the real the the chaos of the 
of sort of like the, the world that the spirit man runs in, which is yeah. if you are actually connected to all that is the universe, you are nothing. Right. And that's horrifying. And it's not that you're nothing. You're just completely absorbed into the universe. And, and you're, you're nothing. It's not that you're nothing, like no actual substance. You're still the substance right. of the universe, but you're not you. You're not a human. You're not all the things that make up this person that we, that we hold to and we cling to. You're right. just you're, you're floating out into the middle of all the chaos. Right. And so finally, right, so he shows him the patterns of the earth. He shows him heaven's soil. He shows him all these things. And then finally the physiognomist runs out and is like, your master is an incoherent mess. I have no way to read his face. Have him get himself together and then I'll come back. And this is when the teacher has shown him the, the vast gushing surge in which no one thing wins out. And then finally, the last time the guy comes, he loses control, he flees. The teacher to his student is like, go after him, go get him. But the guy can't even catch him. The guy's running so fast and is basically like, what did you show him? And he said, I showed him what I am when not yet emerged from my source, something empty and serpentine in its twisting, admitting of no understanding of who or what. So he saw it as something endlessly collapsing mm. and scattering, something flowing away with every wave this is why he fled and at this point the student realizes that he in his interest in this physiognomist has been learning nothing and it's like oh crap and so he goes home and he lives at home for three years <laughs> cooking and cleaning and taking care of his wife feeding the pigs as if he were serving guests and engaging in all domestic endeavors and then it says he returns to a state of unhewn blockishness, solitary like a clump of soil. He planted his physical form there in its place, a mass of chaos and confusion, and that is how he remained to the end of his days. Yeah, this is the, he, he talks here about the mind as the mirror. Right, the consummate person. Yeah. Rejecting nothing, welcoming nothing, responding but not storing. Thus he can handle all things without harm. I think the mind as a mirror is a, as articulated in the Shuanza is such a great concept because it's the first mirror that I've come across that doesn't involve seeing yourself in a way that I would think of superficially as seeing myself, right? Because it's yourself with all of the constructions removed. Like if you're in a state of oneness, with nature, if you're a consummate person, what you're seeing isn't you at all yeah. in any sort of constructed sense. It's just a part of this oneness, devoid of any expectation or prescription. But what is it? Which is what? I think that's the thing. You have to look in yeah. into it to know, right? You have yeah. to look into the mirror to know what's there. He can't tell you what's in your mirror. Yeah, he, he, he consistently uses onomatopoeic uh, words to describe things that, that would be uh, unhelpful if, if he used words, actual words, to describe them. The yeeing and whooshing and whooshing of, of the earth. He's saying, you know, if you want to explore this stuff, it's best to explore it non-verbally. I can play with words and make you realize that words have no true meaning and, and, and deconstruct everything. But if you really want to feel this stuff, you have to swoosh and yee and 
and, and find the flowing of the universe. This, this all goes back, of course, again to Lao Tzu, who says the eternal or the, the actual Tao it cannot be named. The moment you've named it, it's not the Tao. So like, there's an ineffability that's at the core of this that's really difficult for those of us who want to find any kind of hardcore mm -hmm. answer or, or any kind of categorical uh, reality or truth or imperative. It's not Kantian. No. <laughs> but speaking of categorical realities, there's nothing like being endlessly on video chats and Zooming to make me never want to see my own face again. <laughs> <laughs> like my relationship mm -hmm. with this particular aspect of the world is so intense right now and horrible. I would love to go outside or have something Ugh. reflected back at me that isn't a reverse image of my face what I realized is I'm not seeing myself at all. I'm seeing whatever whack body I happen to be inhabiting. <laughs> right now. In reverse. In reverse. Like, I don't know what that is. And what does he refer to it as? Like that lump clump or yeah, something? Yeah, the clump. Yeah. The clump. Like, I'm seeing some clump. Like, I recognize that, like, I walk around in this clump, but he doesn't seem to be afraid of the idea of spirit either. And I, I wondered about that. Um, one of my questions was, does he imply an immortal soul with the passing on of the spirit? Because there's this one passing on the flame parable. I don't know if that's in the later chapters that I didn't end up getting to. Uh, when oil is used to sustain a flame, even though the oil may be consumed or the flame can be transferred to another fuel and theoretically burned forever. Our bodies will die someday, but our spirit and thoughts can be passed on forever. Nurturing life does not aim at preserving the body, but at nourishing the spirit, allowing it to live forever. But I was just going to say that like, death as a transformation ought not to be feared. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are several parables like that where he's like, death is cool, it's all right. But then yeah. in this one, there's an implication right. of like a soul of something passing on, and that death is like a peace too, well, some are saying too that too. like since life is good, death must also be good. Yeah, okay. you shouldn't love life or love death. You shouldn't hate life or hate death. Uh, he actually says very specifically the the Nietzschean, you know, don't don't love, don't hate, don't be compassionate. But uh, but in this case, I think it's really about transformations. That um, the specific language around soul, uh, I wonder where that which where that is in the writings. But well, soul, maybe, soul isn't used; it's spirit in this. Yeah, but even then, I, I wouldn't take that as necessarily uh, as equivalent to any kind of specific spirit, like a Buddhist or a, or a Judeo-Christian spirit. Right. That's why I'm asking because I don't. That really it's like that. that death is a transformation, and that whatever wherever the material that is me goes, it is it goes somewhere. Yeah, I mean, he talks about how death is natural and it's part of the flow and you wouldn't want to flee from heaven by avoiding death. Yeah, there's another parable about a skull that he falls asleep on. But it ends up with the skull like, I'm now a part of the oneness. Why are you bothering me? I don't think yeah, exactly. being dead. <laughs> you know, do you regret being alive right now? Because I'm not, I'm cool with being dead if you're so, cool with being alive. Yeah. In yeah. chapter six, there's something about the metal do you remember this, Luke? Yeah. And Micah, I don't know if you had this in what you read, but it was this whole, there's a metalsmith and this lump of metal that <laughs> like only wants to be made into a really great sword or something, which is ridiculous. And mm -hmm. so a sword or a lump of metal that would be so demanding that it would only be one thing would be an inauspicious hunk 
Um, and so with heaven and earth as our furnace and with creation and death as sort of transformation, who are we to say, I'll only be alive. I won't be dead. You know what I mean? Like right. we're, we are whatever hunk of whatever we are, right? And so we don't get to decide to only be one way. And even that is less about choice and more about transformation. Like, I don't know if you can even say you're still you, but the point is it's, it's all just transformation. It's not like a negation or an end. Percent. Yeah, there's no, it's, not a, it's not that you're a you, it's that you're a constantly transforming clump of stuff. And your attachment, you, you're not detached from being that clump of stuff. You should be fully present in all of the transformations. And that, that, that implies that you are attached at least to, this, to that being as a thing. It's not Buddhist in that sense. Yeah, God, I really like that about it too. I've always bothered me about Buddhism. Like, there's, there's a few things about Buddhism that really bug me. But that, that's, that's, that's one of the key things that somehow like I'm not myself, even if I am myself. Whereas Taoism is like, hey, you're, you're trying to figure out your natural self. There's a pure self. There's like a, na a nature self that you're trying to figure out, trying to like be with. Yeah, I, I think the trick is, is, is that we're also not necessarily talking about a, a predetermination. Oh yeah, no, he's anti-fate, which I like. There's the parable about the sick guy. But he's it's also like, someone that says, accept what happens and then, and then find the, the this in that moment without focusing on the frustration or anger or whatever it is that you are at the cause of the this. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was in, but you may have read it where a guy's like really, really sick and he's whining about his fate. He's like, oh, how could I be fated to be so sick? And Swan's just like, yeah, there's like, there's no fate, buddy. There's just the chaos. And like, you happen to be sick now and that's chance and people will often try and make chance about fate, Yeah, you know? But it's really just, there's a lot that you can't control. So just like, be cool. You gotta just face it the way that Confucius faced that other thing, maybe with equanimity or you know, a calmness and an acceptance that there's yeah. a lot you can't control. That doesn't make it a fate that you have like some destiny for you. Yeah. It's just like, there's a lot of crazy chaos out there. So just like go with it. So here's the thing in chapter six, getting back to the death thing briefly, where there's a conversation with Lady Ju. And so this guy is saying that Lady Ju says, I have the course. And this other guy's like, may I learn this? And she's like, no, 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 not you. You're not right for it at all. Now, this other guy, he had what it took to be a sage, but not the course of a sage. And I had the course of a sage, but no student. So I taught him, blah, blah, blah. And so then she goes on to teach him. And so after one day, he can do this and such. After three days, he can do this and such. After seven days, he can do this and such. And then after seven days more, he could likewise oust all things, and after another seven, even life. Only when life was put outside himself could the dawn break through him. Only with the breakthrough of dawn could he see the singularity. After seeing the singularity, he could free himself of past and present. Free of past and present, he could enter the unborn and undying. What kills all the living does not die. What gives birth to all the living is not born. It is something that sends all beings off and welcomes all beings in destroys all and completes all. Its name is the tranquility of turmoil. This tranquility, turmoil, it is what reaches completion only through its turmoil. When the, then the guy's like, where did you learn this? And she goes on to give the best names possible yeah. since Tolis, who's he, what's it? Right, and the, the final name being perhaps yeah. the beginning. <laughs> right, 
yes, joined in the void, there in the singing, dark oblivion, heard in a whisper, caught in recitation, look and see, in need of labor, aided by ink. The tranquility of turmoil. Yeah, it made me think of Keats's Veil of Soul Making. Like, it's not yeah. a one-to-one -one comparison, but it just tricked out in my head where I'm like, tranquility of turmoil, veil of soul making, these both sound like the forges of some sort of spiritual becomingness, transformation, as Schmanzer would say. Yeah, and I think there's, that, that, again, that duality at the ineffable center of everything, of pure tranquility, but also the, that swirling that, that Hootsa yeah. was talking about, that chaos, total chaos of swirling nothingness, or, or rather swirling unformedness yeah. and non-beingness right. that is at the core of our existence. This, this not, we are not anything. To me, cosmologically, that makes a ton of sense. That reminds me of Sagan's We're All Star Stuff line. Well, and that's sort of the thing, like, what do you do when confronted with that terror, right? Like, yeah. you can build a story of explanation, or you can be like, no, you just have to, you got to be okay with it. You got to look at it and not run away like mm. the physiognomist. We're staring down another barrel here. But, but, it's, uh, okay. The barrel. but it's okay. <laughs> it's a double barrel now. You're looking at it through the mirror of whatever. <laughs> Well, and there's so much more joy in this than what we read last week. <laughs> yeah, really. So much. <laughs> but so similar in so many ways. I, I did want to, I, I always like to talk about and wanted to hear your thoughts on, we're, we're obviously long and I'm going to have to do some creative work here with this, but um, like the cook with his knife and, yeah. and some other figures. What are your thoughts on... Um, doing things ultimately doing things perfectly like like that cook with his knife doing by non-doing the idea of of becoming so good at something that you are not actively trying to do it when you successfully do it i mean it obviously evokes like in the western legends the michelangelo idea where it's less that you are so skillfully applying your will to the thing even though outwardly that might be what it looks like Instead, you're so attuned to the heavenly grain of the marble or the beef mm -hmm. that you're just listening mm -hmm. and allowing your tools to follow to, to sort of liberate the form within or perform the task at hand in the most, I mean, one could argue in the case of the butchering, the least painful way, right? Like you're you're not hacking and ripping it apart. You're following it along. You're, you know, you're done before you even know it. Yeah, there's a total giving over. You're, you're, very, you're not even following. You're just, you're yeah. feeling and it's happening. Right, and then and... he even says where he's like, if, you come to, if I come to a tough spot where there's like a tangle, he stops as if afraid and waits for, it to, for, for all that worry and not knowing to drain out of him until he can hear that you know, whatever, like, like, like first you have to stop listening with your ears, right? And then you have yeah. to listen with your mind and then you have to stop listening, like until you can get to that point where he can intuit where the blade will go. Yeah, and that's, that's a, for the blade to go, right? Right, that the empty space, he, he the calls it the space, exactly. heavenly perforations. Right, so until he can intuit the heavenly perforations and continue again. So is that something, you know, as, as an experienced artist, as an experienced writer, uh, or in any other areas, is that something that you've, you've found 
useful at all in your in your artistic work or in, in any other areas? It would be if I were good enough at anything. I don't accept your modesty. <laughs> no, I no, that it's honesty. It's honesty because I'm applying my will very forcefully mm. to the things that I do. And I do that out of a desperate need to communicate. Yeah, and I, I, I can see the honesty because I also apply my will forcefully to a lot of things I do in music. But I, but I would say when I've really, really performed at the, at the most beautiful level, I've gotten the closest to, to being empty yeah. and allowing the, that expression to, to happen. For me, it's the things that I'm not as good at that I don't have any kind of ego investment in where I feel this the most, mm. where, I, where I have nothing to say, so I'm able to freely exist in a practice of a thing, mm. where I can then, where anything that good, anything good that happens isn't because of my skill. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, that's, that's a wonderful way to look at it, because I've always looked at it as expertise, but you're looking at it as free, joyful expression in something right. you're not an expert at. Right, where it's something that, that if you, if you, it could almost be thought of as an accident. Like, oh my gosh, this accidentally came out great because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but part of it is probably a tapping into a thing, you know, some sort of flow or that moment of unselfconsciousness where you're not trying to apply your flawed, crappy will because it's a thing you're not good at. And instead, something wonderful can happen. And he actually, I forget if it's in, I think it might be in chapter two, talks about the heavenly potter's wheel. Because I think this is the thing, like what's so beautiful about the potter's wheel metaphor is that there's this instability of the clay, there's the rotation of the wheel, everything's happening at once. And if you're going to exert any kind of potential control over what's happening, it can only be through looseness and flexibility. You have to be persistent but you can't be too forceful, you know? And I think that's sort of what I mean, where it's like these moments when you can be so attuned to the motion or transformative thing that's already happening, that you know that you're just hammer blow is not gonna accomplish anything. And you're able somehow to flexibly interact in a way that's harmonious with the already existing instability. You know, I was going to say about music that, like, it doesn't remind me of the times I performed by myself or the times that I tried to play piano in front of people, which have been, like, almost none and horribly heart-racingly nerve-wracking. But, like, choral singing, where I was, like, at church or even in college doing a lot of it, and, like, I wasn't out there for me in any particular way. Yeah. And so because there was a group and because you're trying to blend anyway in the style of singing you're doing, I felt more out of myself in an easier way. I remember this when I started singing in the choir when I had like horrible back pain for many, many months and years because of my commute because I sat in the car for all those hours. And when I started singing, if we were singing good music that week, when it was sort of touch and go whether we would be. <laughs> Um, but what the weeks we were, it was like, oh, I haven't felt my back pain in like an hour and 15 minutes. Mm. And in fact, I haven't felt anything except I've been doing this thing, this other thing, that, and I haven't been thinking about me or my back or my feet or my work or anything. 
And then I'd like blink and the service would be over and be like, oh, my back hurts again. Holy crap. And <laughs> my feet hurt. Now I got to go to work tomorrow and all the other stuff. And then that way. Yeah. And, and there's a physical element here in chapter three. The title is Primacy of Nourishing Life. And, and I think there definitely was a point in, in that chapter and all those sections of that chapter and in the chapter as a whole to say that when you're doing these things right and performing with this and, and being in this way, in this, in this flowing way, you're actually healthier because you're nourishing your being, you're nourishing your life. And I think it's also mm-hmm. not accidental that there's a loss of self or an element of the self as some controlling operator. Well, that's awesome. I think uh, it's late, so I think that's a great place to stop. Brother. Love you both. Thank you so Love much. You. This was really, really great and fun. I appreciate it.